Welcome to Legalese. At Legalese, we offer you a diverse and civil perspective on current issues affecting America and beyond, inviting the smartest minds from Arizona and the country to politely discuss the things that matter in a Socratic manner. Our intent is to improve discourse and information dissemination in a time of hyper-partisanship and poor critical thinking. No one will be called names. No one's beliefs will be mocked. This is our response to recent and biased news content. We are here simply to deliver balanced and informative discussions about legal matters that affect us all, from yours truly, soon-to-be lawyers and current lawyers and journalists united. We offer you all of this without convoluted legalese, which is a word for fancy lawyer talk. We hope you enjoy the show. This is Amina Keshen Kamel, and you're listening to Legalese. Throughout 2020, Legalese produced episodes with ASU Law's Academy for Justice, covering COVID-19 and its impact across communities. This episode on COVID-19 and its impact on Black communities will be introduced and led by my co-host for today, ASU Law Professor and Academy for Justice Deputy Director, Valina Beatty. Valina, I'll be handing this over to you now. Thank you, Amina. Uh, I'm Valina Beatty. I am a law professor at the Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law, Arizona State University. Uh, and I'm also thankful to be the deputy director of our Academy for Justice, which is a criminal justice research center uh, that seeks to bring together uh, research and data uh, and scholarship with real world impact and policy. So I am delighted to be able to uh, host this conversation today with two experts who really are doing that, are bringing scholarship into the public forum, uh, and particularly to speak about our topic today on COVID-19 and how COVID-19 has impacted people of color and especially Black communities. Uh, our first expert today is Dr. Akila Jefferson Shaw. Dr. Jefferson Shaw is an allergist, immunologist, and a bioethicist at Arkansas Children's Hospital. Uh, Dr. Jefferson Shaw is also an assistant professor uh, of allergy immunology at University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences. She is a former fellow in allergy and immunology and bioethics at the National Institute of Health. Our second expert today is Dr. Howard Henderson, PhD, who is the founding director of the Center for Justice Research and is a professor of justice administration in the Barbara Jordan McKee Leland School of Public Affairs at Texas Southern University. Dr. Henderson has worked specifically on mental health and jail diversion programs, as well as behavioral health issues in the criminal justice system. Uh, Dr. Henderson and Dr. Shaw, I wonder uh, if both of you could please tell our audiences a bit about yourselves and about your work. And we'll start with Dr. Shaw. So again, thank you for having me here. So I am an allergist immunologist, as you guys mentioned. I'm a bioethicist too, which is a, a funny mixture for most people. But my background really is in health policy and bioethics from an undergraduate and graduate perspective. And I've always been interested in medicine and wanted to practice medicine. So then that led me sort of down that pathway. Um, right now, the work that I do is mostly focused on all those areas. So I work a lot in health disparities, health policy, bioethics. Within the allergy and immunology world, my focus is mostly on asthma and health disparities in asthma in children. And um, 
lately with COVID-19, of course, I've been looking a lot about health disparities, particularly representation of black and brown people in research um, effort. Thank you, and Dr. Henderson. Yeah, again, uh, thanks for having me. Uh, I'm Howard Henderson, the director of the Center for Justice Research, where our research focuses on evidence ways uh, to reduce mass incarceration. Uh, our most recent research uh, is designed to help decision makers uh, identify ways to reduce uh, racial disparity, but we've also been looking at uh, the impact of COVID-19 uh, in correctional spaces. So I'm looking forward to uh, having a conversation today. Thanks for having me again. Well, and your center has released a report specifically on that topic, am I right? That's correct. Uh, we came together with a group uh, out of Washington, D.C. Uh, to examine uh, what COVID-19 looks like. Uh, looking at the National Black Public Defender Association, we felt that uh, there needed to be someone to uh, push the narrative in the right direction uh, because we recognized that the whole notion of race uh, was being looked at simply as a variable. And we understood the impact that that had in our community, particularly when you understand uh, the significant overrepresentation of blacks uh, in correctional spaces and the, over -like, the, the increased likelihood that blacks uh, would actually uh, have pre-existing conditions. We knew that that combination would be deadly. And I really look forward to hearing more about that report. But for our listeners right now, could you let them know where they could find it? Yeah, if you go to our website, uh, centerforjusticeresearch.org, it's on the main page there. You'll see it, uh, Saving Black Lives. Again, centerforjusticeresearch.org, uh, Save Black Lives. You'll see a, copy, a link to the report that you can download or read excerpts uh, from the report there. Thank you. Um, Dr. Shaw, I wonder if you could uh, talk with us about the disparities in the impact of COVID-19 among different communities, but particularly the Black communities. Absolutely. So um, at the, I guess the height of the, of the pandemic back in, um, I would say maybe March, April, May, uh, when more and more people were starting to become infected with COVID-19 and so many people succumbing to the actual virus, uh, we found that there was just a disproportionate number of Black people, um, of Latinx people, and of Indigenous people who were not only infected with the virus, but also dying from the virus. And so there was a lot of research um, in kind of trying to answer the question of why this is happening. And it really, from what we can see, a lot of it has to do with pre-existing conditions. A lot of it has to do with other social determinants of health such as your exposure in the community. So maybe where you work puts you at higher risk of getting exposed to the virus if you're an essential frontline worker. Um, also issues with testing um, abilities in certain communities. So decreased testing in some places that were less affluent versus other places that were more affluent um, and other access issues related to that. And then even uh, issues with um, bias and uh, racism in the medical field uh, where people tried to get either testing or tried to get admitted to the hospital if they weren't feeling well early on. So all those things coming together, you know, we really have look, looked a lot into social determinants of health and how that impacts health outcomes and unfortunately how it's impacted very bad health outcomes for a lot of communities of color. Thank you. Um, and Dr. Henderson, I don't know if you have uh, anything that you've seen in particular about the impact of COVID-19 on um, the, the Black community? Yeah, you know, for the most part, you know, in our work, we've seen uh, the impact that it's had. Uh, 
by way of uh, criminal justice system involvement. Uh, we've seen a disproportionate number of families be infected because they either had uh, a relative who worked in a correctional space. Uh, a lot of blacks actually serve as frontline workers and our criminal justice system who are being impacted when they work in these communities around the country. And you previously had mentioned um, the impact of pre-existing conditions and how that has exacerbated uh, COVID-19 and the, the health impact of COVID-19. So that we're seeing uh, multiple influences come together uh, and how, how do you see those influences of pre-existing conditions as well as criminal justice involvement, uh, as well as what Dr. Shaw was saying during this pandemic? How have you seen that impact Black communities? You have to understand uh, the historical reservations that uh, Black communities have when it comes to healthcare in this country. Given the, the history of, of discrimination uh, primarily, uh, think about the Tuskegee experiment, right, where they had untreated syphilis uh, in Black communities uh, and sterilization without Black people's permission. All of those issues are still uh, relevant today because we have not forgotten about those. And so they have created an unnecessary roadblock uh, in, in our understanding of what these issues are like. But you also have to deal with access and utilization of healthcare in this country. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, the whole notion of occupation, uh, uh, racial and ethnic minorities uh, disproportionately represent uh, essential workers in, in you know, healthcare facilities and farms, factories, grocery stores, public transportation, but also uh, as correctional officers in many cities around the country. You, you have huge educational income and wealth gaps uh, where equities are pervasive, uh, where they directly impact uh, the quality of education, but also leads to uh, lower high school completion rates, all of these serve as barriers to, to college entrance, which we also see limit our opportunities for other types of employment that would find themselves outside of uh, the COVID-19 fray. What I'm speaking to is just the exposure to COVID-19 and why it is uh, you find the increased likelihood of African-Americans being in these spaces. Uh, you also look at the situation of, of, of public housing, uh, particularly in the city of Houston, we still have public housing projects uh, in their close proximity to each other. Uh, individuals who live in these environments have also been found uh, to be in greater likelihood of, of, of contracting uh, COVID-19. And Dr. Shaw, is part of what Dr. Anderson is talking about in terms of education and poverty, is that what you would refer to as social determinants of health? Absolutely, it is. So all of these things that impact the way that we live, the way that we're educated, the way that we kind of grow and develop, they're all social determinants of health. So that's anything you would think of simply from access to insurance so you can get health care, all the way to access to early childhood education so that you can have good opportunities going forward, uh, issues with the neighborhood in which you live, issues with housing, uh, housing policies. One thing that Dr. Henderson mentioned are, are housing projects and also multi-generational housing. We know if COVID-19 comes home uh, to your home that almost everyone in your house is going to be impacted. And if, especially if you live in a home with lots of people, it's very hard to isolate yourself from those people when you're sick or when you've been exposed. Some other communities may have an easier time doing. So all of those things really go into social determinants of health, which we see in other aspects of healthcare and medical care too. But with COVID-19, it's just been exacerbated so much and the focus 
focus, or rather the the us seeing how impactful social determinants of health are on one's health outcomes, um, I think has been really highlighted here. Well, and what do you think are the known and unknown, uh, potentially long-term impacts of COVID-19 on Black communities? I'll start here. <laughs> so one thing we talk about are these different waves of the pandemic. And so we think about the first wave, which is really that increased um, caseloads, increased death and mortality from the um, from the pandemic. Then we think about issues with long-term care facilities and nursing homes, which unfortunately a lot of communities of color are also disproportionately in, um, uh, represented in those communities as well. We think about the uh, long-term uh, kind of long haul symptoms that we've seen in some patients where they have months and months and months of symptoms um, even after the acute infection is gone. And then also really the impact on interruption of chronic care. So there have been lots of studies that have come out so far looking at outcomes as far as heart attacks go, strokes, diabetes care, cancer care, all of these things where we interrupted those types of care because we're caring for so many patients who have COVID-19. And then last but not least, issues with mental health, issues with burnout, issues with economic injury, which we've seen here, of course, with you know massive amounts of people who've been laid off, massive amounts of economic instability. And all of those are going to have a long-term impact on um, most Americans, but in particular on Black and brown communities who may have been in a worse state to start out with. Than, uh, than some other communities were. Dr. Henderson, from uh, a criminal justice lens, do you have any thoughts on what could be the known and unknown long-term impacts of COVID-19 on Black communities? Yeah, and I'll, and I'll uh, speak to this because I think that, you know, we oftentimes overlook the environmental impact of COVID-19. When you have a community that already has a high rate of unemployment, a high rate of underemployment, which essentially means that they don't earn enough to classify as having earned a livable wage. When you understand the whole notion of uh, a lack of resources in many of these communities, COVID-19 has decimated the economic foundation in many communities around the country. And many of the first who have been laid off, unemployed, have been uh, Black or African-American around the country. And so you're looking at the socioeconomic condition that has been uh, made worse because of the pandemic. You are going to see long-term effects of that. Uh, in the criminal justice system, we're seeing uh, violent crime go through the roof. Uh, we're seeing people who have a high rate of depression. Uh, we see people who have been unable to deal with the, the realities of a pandemic uh, that doesn't have any end in sight. And unfortunately, in the criminal justice system, the only approach that uh, we oftentimes go to is incarceration. And so you're going to see incarceration begin to go in a different direction. We've already started to see that in the local jail numbers uh, have begun to rise because of that. Uh, and, and essentially, we have begun to criminalize poverty all over again uh, because of the pandemic. And so I think that's one of those that would be uh, near and dear to much of the work that we do is begin to understand how do we overcome that, given that we were trying to move out of that and here we are with COVID-19 once again exacerbating those issues. Right. There was a, a thought that maybe at the beginning of the pandemic that we would see a decrease in our prison population, right? That because, as Dr. Shaw said, similarly to once one person in a home gets sick, um, it's very likely that many people in the home will get sick. Similarly, for people contained in prisons in close quarters, uh, it's 
just a perfect storm for spread of this virus. And so there was this idea that, well, people are going to be released because they didn't get death sentences. And yet that's what they're, they're looking at. But have you, have you seen prison populations changing? And I mean, do you see any, any long-term impact in the, in the prison system from COVID-19? Well, you know, we won't see the prison system directly impacted this year because it has a, a longer lag time. What you're going to see, though, is that uh, the jail numbers are going to rise uh, drastically over the next couple of months. You know, when you think about COVID-19, when you think about the Black community, when you think about how the pandemic has manifested itself in our criminal justice system, uh, and you've also countered that with the fact that we failed to actually center the conversation on race, uh, the implications in the Black community are huge. When you think about, you know, we're in a public health crisis. Uh, we were trying to climb ourselves out of mass incarceration. Now mass incarceration has now moved to the county level with local jails. You're going to see people go in and out of those jails uh, in greater numbers for longer periods of time. Uh, when you think about it, the data tells us that people spend on average 25 days in a county jail before they're let back out. Many of these folks are let back out without being tested for COVID-19. And so you, you see this cycle. Uh, they're in close quarters while they're in jail. It's a very transient population. Uh, there's a high prevalence of chronic and infectious disease. Jails and prisons that we found have shown uh, to, to pose significant public health risk during this pandemic. Jails have had to cancel visits. Prisons remain hotspots around the country. Uh, I think we now see uh, almost 500 more positive cases per 100,000 people in the county jail than we see in general society. Uh, when we see a chronic uh, medical illness, infectious disease rate uh, four to 17 times higher in correctional environments, you know, the criminal justice system, jails and prisons have become a powder keg for COVID-19 when you're talking about you know, people going inside this environment, uh, contracting COVID-19, getting out without having been tested, and now going back to a community uh, that's more likely to have pre-existing conditions, we, we're, we're in serious trouble. So we do have a new presidential administration coming into office. Um, what are three things that you would want this next administration to do to address COVID-19 in Black communities, to uh, Dr. Henderson, as your report says, to center this conversation of COVID-19 on race and communities of color. Uh, but I'll turn first to Dr. Shaw on this for what you, you hope the next administration will do. I think the first thing is um, intentionality. So having intentional policies that are uh, focused on race and ethnicity, but also focused on structural uh, impacts and changes that need to be made in order to have kind of long lasting, but also large impacts on large populations of people. That's the first thing I would say. The second really is leadership. We have since the beginning of this pandemic had a, a paucity of leadership from the federal government and it is in dire need. So that is from a testing perspective, that's from a containment contact tracing perspective, um, from a vaccine perspective, now that we have two vaccines that have received emergency use authorization by the FDA, and we'll have more to come there. But really, all of these structural uh, impacts that, that need to, to be kind of sought through so that we can figure out a good plan going forward. And then the last thing I would say is um, 
is really investment. So we have intentionality, we have leadership, and we have investment. And right now, COVID-19 is the acute problem that is happening. But all the reasons, from my perspective, that this pandemic has uh, gone the way it's gone in our country is because of long-lasting, long-standing, systemic uh, problems. And we need to have investment in infrastructure, investment in structural changes so that we can start to tackle away that, that all these things so that it's not just COVID-19 that we're getting at. We're also getting at chronic health problems. We're getting at insure, uh, insurance issues. We're getting at affordable health care. We're getting at you know all these things that really are interconnected, as we've been talking about, and really depend on one another. Um, and if we don't have a good plan going forward that is uh, constructive, looking at all those things with good leadership from the top, then the next time we have another infectious disease outbreak, we're going to be in the same boat that we're in currently. I, I think, you know, on top of what's been stated, I think it's very important that uh, we realign the criminal justice system with, with proven uh, public health approaches. I think they need to increase funding to community-based uh, support services that help alleviate these health disparities uh, for those people that are most likely to come in contact with the criminal justice system. I think they need to eliminate uh, medical co-pays for people who are incarcerated in jails and prisons around the country because most states uh, force individuals who are incarcerated to pay medical co-pays and it just doesn't make any sense, particularly during the pandemic. Uh, I think that we need to do more collaborating like you have brought together on this phone call uh, is to collaborate uh, public health institutions with uh, criminal justice researchers and stakeholders who understand uh, that environment. But I also think that we need to reduce uh, the population of people who are in prisons and jails because we understand the, the close proximity within which uh, they live. And I think reducing that number would help uh, alleviate a, a lot of stress in that space. Dr. Henderson, you had previously talked about uh, historically how um, people in the Black communities have been uh, tested unethically, secretly by people in the medical institution and profession without their consent. And uh, you gave the example of the Tuskegee experiment uh, in Alabama, uh, but there also uh, seems to have been problematically uh, black people left out of clinical trials and testing of um, medications or of vaccines. Um, Dr. Shaw, I wonder if you could speak a bit to that history of black people not being included uh, in clinical trials and testing of um, medications and vaccines. Absolutely. So, you know, it's sort of a double-edged sword because there is a history of that makes Black people with good reason distrust the biomedical research institution from Tuskegee to Henrietta Lacks to sterilization practices. Um, so many different horrible examples throughout the many, many, many years, decades. And uh, so for that reason, historically, lots of Black people have had reservations about participating in certain types of uh, research and things of that nature. But as you mentioned, there also is this history of exclusion of Black people from uh, research trials. And that exclusion, I think, has not been looked at from a um, 
a, a clear kind of research perspective in a very good way. So there are some studies within clinical trials for cancer medications specifically that look at why researchers don't want to um, recruit Black participants. What is the underlying reason? Is it because the Black participants don't want to be recruited or is it because there's some other bias going on there? And when you look at those studies, I find them very troubling. So there's lots of data out there that shows that for some of those studies, there's an idea that Black participants are not good study participants, that they're maybe um, will not be compliant, maybe uh, they're just harder to recruit, maybe it takes more effort and time, um, all these different things. But to me, that's all coded language for other underlying implicit biases that the research institution has itself. So it's not simply good enough to say that Black people don't want to be study participants because of a history, but also, you know, if we're going to say that, we also need to recognize that the entire uh, institution has willfully left Black people behind. If you look at the numbers of Black participants for most clinical trials, it is far lower than the um, the uh, population of Black people in the United States. For COVID-19 in particular, the numbers of Black people in clinical trials for vaccines has not been all that great. Uh, so for the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines, they're about 8 to 9% of the study population, which again is less than what is representative of Black people in the U.S. But again, it's a double-edged sword, right? There are many reasons for why that is. But I think the focus, or just focusing on the history without also focusing on the other side, which is really, in my view, implicit bias in the entire research institution, doesn't get at the, um, the root problem and it will not, uh, will not help us to kind of move forward. Uh, for COVID-19, um, you know, I think that we, there of course needs to be a community-based approach to recruitment, to uh, health literacy, to um, testing and access and all these things. But there also, again, I keep coming back to the structural changes. There has to be a structural change of the system to um, not only make it more inclusive of having Black people participate, but also rooting out implicit bias and racism within the institution that um, has led to us being where we are right now. Thank you. Uh, and Dr. Henderson, do you have any thoughts on how the vaccine is rolling out in uh, Black communities, but also where uh, incarcerated people fit into the vaccine as well? Yeah, I, I think, you know, I, I think... Uh, Dr. Jefferson make a good point. I want to add to that one observation, and I think that's what we hit on in our report. When you look at patient-focused community-level health needs and interventions, those tended to be the research focus of Black researchers and those that were more culturally competent, Okay. We know that research that's community-based and patient-centered is less likely to be funded. And so we have an entire ecosystem of knowledge that does not put minority-focused issues front and center. And so not only do we need to have more Blacks as part of the uh, clinical trial, but we need more Black researchers because if you don't understand the community, 
it's very difficult to ask the most important questions. Now, that doesn't mean that every researcher needs to be black. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is when you don't have black researchers as a part of the team, then the team needs to make sure that they have done what they have, need to do to be culturally competent. And so that means better understanding who these folks are, how they, how they move, how they think, how they operate in these spaces. We have a situation in this country where many of our research teams don't have anybody who looks like the people that they're researching. And so we need to make sure that we institutionalize diversity on the part of the research team. I just want to add that piece because that's very important because even when you recruit more black people to participate in the study, if they don't see researchers who look like them, then they begin to ask questions. And so I think that's one piece that we've often overlooked in this conversation. Dr. Shaw, do you think there's a particular way that uh, since you are an allergist that um, the allergic reactions to the vaccine so far, um, do you think there's a particular way that uh, allergies and the vaccine are impacting uh, how it's distributed in Black communities or whether it will be received in Black communities? I think that, um, you know, it adds another wrinkle to, to what we're dealing with. There's already a lot of uh, hesitation from um, Black people, particularly patients that I see with, you know, wanting to get the vaccine just in general. Uh, there are issues that people have with the timing of it. How was the vaccine made within just a few months? Um, and so we've been trying to educate on the many decades of research that have been done, particularly with mRNA vaccines, which are the basis of the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines, decades of research that made it possible for this vaccine in particular to be produced within a few months and clinically tested in humans. Um, as far as the allergic reactions go, we're still learning a lot about it. There's just guidance this weekend that came out from our societies on how to approach this on a community level um, that we'll be following. But I do think it just adds another wrinkle, another reason why people are hesitant. And, um, you know, again, I understand that hesitation. I think that's a natural hesitation of the unknown uh, to really be a little concerned. But from my perspective, what I try to do is provide as much good information as possible uh, based on what we do know. So we do know that these vaccines have been studied for decades. We do know that um, you know, there are certain types of reactions that are actually pretty common with most vaccines. So the rate at which we're seeing allergic reactions right now is pretty much the same that we see with most vaccines, except for most vaccines, we don't see it on the news every single day. So you know, all this heightened anxiety about the entire process. So trying to dampen that a little bit with good information. And again, not forcing people into vaccination, but arming them with the correct information so they can make the decision for themselves. Dr. Henderson, I'm going to throw an additional question in here. So I, I know that you have a um, strong research history with policing and being on the Houston Body Camera Committee. Uh, and I wonder if you've seen intersections between policing and COVID-19 and uh, Black communities over the past nine months. Keep in mind that the community just like they're apprehensive about government approaches to healthcare, they're just as apprehensive about working with police, right? And, and so the interaction with the police and the minority community uh, over the last couple of months, and let's be honest about it, it's been very uh, stressful because we're coming out of George Floyd, we're coming out of a situation where 
there have been mass protests around the country. There have been attempts in various cities around the country, Houston being one of those, where they have put together various advisor groups to uh, help understand the challenges that people face in the community. So everyone's been pretty much interacting on Zoom, right? And so we have very limited face-to-face interaction other than traditional police community interactions. So we don't see a whole lot in that space right now. Uh, I think that uh, that also put a damper on uh, improving police community relations that we thought we would have seen by now. Thank you. And I believe uh, Amina has a question as well. Yeah, just a quick question. And I'll leave it up to, to both of you if you have any of these resources that you'd like to share. But what are some resources you'd like to share with our audiences to inform themselves on this issue that you consider must reads that maybe people haven't thought about reading? One that I would recommend as far as the history of um, mistrust among Black people in the United States is a book called Medical Apartheid. And it was written by Harriet Washington. It is a, a very good just overview of the history so that people can understand um, why uh, certain communities feel the way that they do about uh, the biomedical research institution. Um, there is, I'm sure, you know, there's a lot of overlap between that and policing and um, incarcerated uh, spaces um, as far as experimentation goes. I'll stop there. I'm going to think of another one, but I'll stop there. I, I think uh, one that everyone should read is our report, obviously. Uh, if you go to centerforjusticeresearch.org, uh, on the main page there, you'll see a copy of the Save Black Lives report. I think there's some great references there as well to kind of familiarize yourself with what's out there in this COVID-19 uh, criminal justice space. Uh, we also just had an article come out in Newsweek two weeks ago about uh, vaccinating the incarcerated. I think you find it very interesting. Uh, very interesting philosophical debate right now about whether or not we want to give inmates uh, COVID-19 vaccination. Very spirited conversation uh, going on around the country. I think those two uh, are kind of what you want to pay attention to. But I, right now, because uh, books take so long to print, uh, most of the work that I'm going to recommend are going to be agency level reports and, 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 and articles that you find in respectable news outlets because they seem to be more real time. Um, the sentencing project is doing some good work right now in that space. Um, and, and listen, John Hopkins is doing some good work right now in, in that space. I mean, they obviously are ahead of the curve. Um, that, those, that's kind of where I would go right now. Um, I'm pretty sure there are going to be books that are going to flood the market uh, in a few months. But right now, I think if you want to stay abreast of what's happening, those are the areas that you want to pay attention to. Thank you so much. And we'll, we'll link to your report as well on our website. I'm going to add one more thing. So I agree 100% with Dr. Henderson. I would probably not go to news reports so much only because there's been so much misinformation out there. I think the university level reports and the institutional reports are absolutely great. But a CNN article or ABC News article um, or Fox News or whatever usually is not going to give you the um, kind of unbiased opinion or unbiased information that I think is useful right now. And then I should have said that you all should read an opinion piece that I wrote <laughs> called uh, How COVID-19 is Impacting Black Communities in the Huffington Post back in June. So you can just Google that and find that as well. Yes, please. Thank you for sharing that with us. I'll link to that as well on our website. Thank you, Dr. Henderson and Dr. Shaw. 
uh, it's been a pleasure and thank you for for uh, for educating all of us on on this issue and we're, we're so happy to have you on this podcast so with that Belina I'll, I'll hand it over to you thanks um Dr. Shaw am I correct that uh you uh I may be totally wrong on this <laughs> am I correct that you uh post kind of weekly information uh about COVID-19 uh, and if so, is there a way that our um, listeners can find that information? You are correct. Um, so I post weekly videos, just COVID-19 updates, a brief nugget usually of the most up-to-date research studies that have come out um, in the past week. So I usually try to focus on things that come out in the New England Journal of Medicine or the Journal of the American Medical Association, uh, things like that, just to give good nuggets of information that are accessible to the general population and also using layman's terms so that they're you know easy to understand. I started doing this back in June because a lot of my family and friends had questions and um, I thought it'd be a helpful way to, to answer that for them. So you can find them on Facebook on uh, at Akila Jefferson MD and also on Instagram at Akila Jefferson MD, A-K-I-L-A-H-J-E-F-F-E-R-S-O-N-M-D. Thank you. Uh, and uh, before we close, I'm wondering if both of you could share some final thoughts uh, on our conversation today or anything that we didn't cover. So thank you for having um, us for this good conversation. I really right now have been focusing a lot on COVID vaccines and the Black community. And um, I hope that we can continue that kind of conversation about vaccine hesitancy, what it means to be vaccinated, how we think vaccines will get us out of this pandemic. But then also, um, you know, I was vaccinated about two weeks ago with my first dose of the Pfizer vaccine and did great. You know, I'm a case study of one, right? But did great. I'll get my next vaccination next week. Um, my parents, both over 70 years old, signed up for their vaccines in Louisiana this morning. So they will get it in the next two to three weeks. I really try to focus these conversations on remembering that we're all interconnected and that you know, we can't think of vaccinations and getting out of the pandemic from an individual perspective only. We, of course, want to make sure that we ourselves are safe um, and well taken care of. But we also want to think about our communities in general. And really, vaccination is about community-based uh, protection. It's not just about individual protections. And I think if people think about vaccines in that way, that may help bridge some of the hesitancy that we have. It's not just about you, but it's also protecting mom, dad, sister, brother, aunts, uncles, cousins, neighbors, and faraway neighbors, too. Thank you. Dr. Henderson. Yeah, you know, we spent the last six or so months trying to uh, help decision makers in the criminal justice system understand uh, why the public health approach would be beneficial, uh, not only right now, but going forward, because we understand that uh, crime in, in a lot of situations is, is a sickness uh, for many different dimensions. And so I think if we understand that, uh, then we are better able to deal with the issues more so than through a social control approach. Uh, I think that the more education that we can provide people who make decisions, I think we're better off. I think the community, from a criminal justice standpoint, uh, they understand crime and justice. I think that the communities in a state where they're looking for help and they're looking for answers 
and, and the more viable our solutions are, the more tenable they are, the better off we are in getting them to adopt and, and support those. But I think that we're going to see a transformation uh, two years from now that we didn't know we were going to be at because of COVID-19. In some respects, COVID-19 has helped us understand how connected we are, uh, as Dr. Jefferson stated. And I think that if we keep focused on that, we'll be going in the right direction. Well, thank you, Dr. Jefferson Shaw and Dr. Henderson, for joining us today on the Legalese podcast and for joining the Academy for Justice in this discussion. Uh, so wish you both uh, health and well-being for the new year. And thank you again. Thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs>